want to continue on our series of lectures on Reformed theology with the um, perseverance of the saints, commonly called unconditional eternal security. Um, this is the, the fifth point in the series called Tulip, commonly called Tulip, um, and it's a, this logical conclusion of the, of the system. And without the other five, uh, four points that are involved, you don't really understand uh, what a person is saying when they say that someone perseveres or that they are eternally secure, that they can never lose their salvation. Unless you understand other points such as the election of the believer, the fact that a person is totally unable, that's where they start, that the person is totally unable, then the person is elected to be saved, and then that Jesus only died for that person, and that is effectually applied or irresistibly applied to the person's heart so that the word used is regeneration in irresistible grace. It's very frequently used. So the person is regenerated. They're given new life. They're made a new person irresistibly by the Holy Spirit. That is, the substance there of their heart, soul, whatever you want to call that, is changed so that they do respond with repentance and belief. If you don't understand those points, it's very difficult to understand the concept of eternal security as it is put forward. And in many times, this doctrine has been separated from the main body of Calvinism and accepted by many Arminians. And it's, it's, a, it's a very difficult thing to avoid if you accept another idea, which we'll look at, which is the absolute foreknowledge of God. Okay? Um, in the, in the system of Calvinism, like I said, this is just a conclusion of the rest of the system. If you accept the rest of the system, you must accept this. And the Calvinist rightly objects to the Arminian saying that he accepts this part of the system but rejects the rest. Because he says this is the conclusion of a particular system, and if you reject the conclusion, you must also reject the system. And so when the Arminian says that man has free will, is able to, to fulfill the law of God, is able to repent, and that repentance and faith are conditions for salvation and not just results of regeneration of a, of a metaphysical change taking place in the person by the Holy Spirit, when the Calvinist objects to that, he rightly does so. And we'll read some of that this morning. Calvinist objecting to the Arminian accepting the idea of predestination, or, or rejecting the idea of predestination, but accepting the idea of the perseverance of the saints or eternal security as being completely inconsistent. And then also their objection to accepting foreknowledge and rejecting perseverance of the saints or predestination. They also object to that as well. And we'll read some of that. Okay? Um, now, when people try to hold on to um, eternal security and reject the rest of the system, they are inconsistent. I'd like to read you a, a verse, or a verse, <laughs> to read you a portion, paragraph, or something like that out of the Reformed Doctrine of Predestination by Bettner, page 182, in the section on the perseverance of the saints, chapter 14. He says, This doctrine does not stand alone, but is, but is a necessary part of the Calvinistic system of theology. The doctrines of election and efficacious grace, that is, unconditional election and irresistible grace, I'm just explaining there, logically imply the certain salvation of those who receive these blessings. If God has chosen men absolutely and unconditionally to eternal life, and if his Spirit effectively applies to them the benefits of redemption, 
the inescapable, inescapable conclusion is that these persons shall be saved. In other words, they cannot be lost um, because if you accept the idea of unconditional election and efficacious grace, the logical conclusion is the perseverance of the saints. What he's saying it's just a logical conclusion of that. Now, um, what this is, is conclusion of the nature of regeneration or irresistible grace. As we saw when we looked at, at irresistible grace, the, the doctrine of irresistible grace, that what they believe is that the person's heart is actually changed and that it's a metaphysical change that is taking place. Something in the person metaphysically is taking place and not morally because the morals are a result of the change that takes place. In other words, I repent and I believe because I have been changed and I am not changed because I repent and because I believe. And because the change takes place in that fashion, man has no control over that particular um, aspect, the change that takes place. It is happening in a metaphysical realm. Man has no control over that realm. I'd like to read you another quote concerning this. There are no conditions to this, to this um, eternal security. Uh, in relating to the nature of regeneration, Bettner says this, page 184. The nature of the change which occurs in regeneration is a sufficient guarantee that the life imparted shall be permanent. Regeneration is a radical and supernatural change of the inner nature through which the soul is made spiritually alive and the new life which is implanted is immortal. And since it is a change in the inner nature, it is in a sphere in which man does not have control. No creature is at liberty to change the fundamental principles of its nature, for that is the prerogative of God as creator. Hence, nothing short of another supernatural act of God could reverse this change and cause the new life to be lost. The born-again Christian can no more lose his sonship to the Heavenly Father than an earthly son can lose his sonship to an earthly father. The idea that a Christian may fall away and perish arises from a wrong conception of the principle of spiritual life which is imparted to the soul in regeneration. Okay? Now it's important for us to remember when considering this that um, taking it from the Arminian viewpoint, which like I've told you before, I don't really hold with a lot of Arminius' views, but taking it, quote, from the Arminian viewpoint, as the Calvinists call it, um, we do not believe that a person that is a Christian is completely insecure. That's not the opposite view of, e of eternal, unconditional security, you see. The opposite view is not total insecurity, it's <laughs> conditional security. You see, it's still security, but it's conditional rather than unconditional. Some people get the, get the idea that in Arminianism, and of course this is commonly pointed out by Calvinists, they believe that the, the Arminian walks around constantly insecure, constantly being afraid that he's going to lose his salvation and trembling at every moment, thinking that his salvation depends upon himself. And of course the Calvinist thinks this way because he feels that the Arminian believes that it's, it's self-salvation, that you have to save yourself by your choice, to believe and trust God, rather than it's a condition that we believe and trust God, and it's his act to respond and save us. So um, instead of looking at both sides of it, they think that we believe in a self-salvation. Okay. So it's not, like I said, it's not the, uh, the opposite, it's not complete insecurity. You don't walk around trembling thinking you're going to lose your salvation. 
but uh, it's conditional security rather than unconditional security. I am secure, but it's upon condition. And the security um, is a result of the fact that God is operating in my life, and what he has done has affected me, and I will never be the same. Even if I turn and go into rebellion, I will never be the same, and that's why uh, Peter says in Second Peter 2, verses 20 to 22, he says that it is uh, uh, worse for those that turn around, and it would have been better for them never to have known the way of righteousness than to turn around and depart. Because once you've been affected by the truth of the gospel, it's very difficult to turn around and go away. We've experienced that with kids that have left schools of evangelism and gone and turned away from God. That to, to do that, it was very difficult for them to do because of the truth that they knew. And uh, they had to fight the Holy Spirit and the Word of God. So when they went into sin, they went in much more deeply than they'd been in before, into rebellion, because of the truth. Now, I firmly believe that if I have to... Um, if I were to turn around and walk away from God, I would have to do so against the influence of the Word of God implanted in my heart and in my mind. I'd have to do so against the struggles of the Holy Spirit working in my heart to convict me. I'd have to do so in the face of the love of God in what He has done for me, in the face of my knowledge of the cross and what Jesus has done. So it would be very difficult for me to fall away. The, the question is whether or not it is impossible. And that's what the Calvinist is saying. It is totally impossible because it does not depend upon me. Whereas the Bible very frequently talks about the apostasy or falling away from the faith. Okay, so the opposite of this is not, the alternative is not total insecurity, it's conditional security. Okay? Now, um, when people, now many times Arminians will take, the point we're considering right now, I just thought I'd go off under that so that people can get the wrong idea. Um, the point that we're trying to take is that when people hold perseverance of the saints and reject the rest of the system, that they're inconsistent. Now, many Arminians, on the basis of God's foreknowledge, will try to hold on to eternal security and say that God foreknew those that would be saved, and therefore they, they will persevere or they will be eternally secure. Now, if you accept that, the, uh, Calvinist has a lot of problems. Uh, with that. Um, he, doesn't, he doesn't bother him too much if you accept both the perseverance of the saints and the foreknowledge of God, but many times the Arminian will accept the foreknowledge of God and, re and reject the perseverance of the saints. And that's a real problem for a lot of Calvinists because they look at that and they go, that's inconsistent, which it is. Rationally, in accordance with the two systems that are being dealt with, it's inconsistent to hold on to foreknowledge and reject uh, the perseverance of the saints. Now, when you say that foreknowledge is true, but you reject the idea of the perseverance of the saints, and the, and the Calvinist says that's inconsistent, this is an admission that foreknowledge implies determinism. You can think about that. You can just write it down and think about it. It is an admission that foreknowledge implies determinism. I'm going to read you another quote from our Calvinist author, Bettner. The Reformed Doctrine of Predestination Page 42 says this. The Arminian objection against foreordination, here he's talking about predestination. The Arminian objection against foreordination bears with equal force against the foreknowledge of God. What God foreknows must, in the very nature of the case, be as fixed and certain as what is foreordained. And if one is inconsistent 
with the free agency of man, the other is also. Foreordination renders the events certain, while foreknowledge presupposes that they are certain. You get the difference? He's saying basically the, Cal the Calvinist, the consistent Calvinist will say, God foreordains something, therefore he foreknows it. But when a person says that God foreknows it, but has not foreordained it, and has not planned it to be thus, or determined it to be so, when you try to hold that position, foreknowledge implies that the events are certain and are fixed, whereas predestination says that that's how they got that way. You see? And then you have the problem, when you try to face foreknowledge without predestination, of saying, how did the events get fixed that way, apart from God? Okay. Then you have a being greater than God, or fate is greater than God, or history is greater than God, or something like that, because the events got fixed somehow without God doing it, the events of history. Because if an event, okay, take the next point, only fixed events can be perfectly or absolutely foreknown. A future contingency, the words used for a possibility, something that doesn't necessarily have to happen, a future contingency cannot be perfectly known because it's only a possibility. Only future certainties can be known. Only if something is actually going to happen can it be completely foreknown. Whereas the doctrine that many, um, especially many Arminians hold rejecting the perseverance of the saints is that God absolutely knows everything that's going to happen to you and yet those events are not fixed. And that's a synthesis of two positions. Okay? Now, so um, I'll read you another quote here. Rather interesting. This is page 43 in the Reformed Doctrine of Predestination. When the Arminian is confronted with the argument from the foreknowledge with the argument from the foreknowledge of God, he has to admit the certainty or fixity of future events. Yet when dealing with the problem of free agency, <clears throat> he wishes to maintain that the acts of free agents are uncertain and ultimately dependent upon the choice of the person, which is plainly an inconsistent position. See what he's saying? He's pinning the Arminian down and saying, if you believe in the total foreknowledge of God and the absolute foreknowledge of God, since only fixed events can be completely foreknown, you are also affirming complete, for, complete foreordination or predestination. And therefore, <clears throat> both ways you are resisting the idea of free agency. If you accept foreordination and it rejects the idea of free agency, you are also rejecting, when you use foreknowledge, you are also rejecting free agency. So either way, the free will of man is out. Whether you do it by saying God planned everything to happen a certain way, or simply that God knows everything that's going to happen, both ways you exclude the free will of man. Okay? And the Calvinists are very quick to point this out to the Arminian that says, um, I believe that God knows absolutely everything that's going to happen in the future, and they say, well, then they must be fixed events. And if they're fixed events, who fixed them? Question mark. Now, I've, no, I've noticed this in talking with many people that hold this position that God absolutely foreknows and yet man is completely free, that at this point they do what is called an antinomy, or a, in a sense, a synthesis. And they say that you hold both doctrines at the same time, you hold the idea of the absolute foreknowledge of God and the idea of the free, complete free will of man, even though they're completely inconsistent with each other, you hold both of them and you hold them in a tension. And I'll say, yes, there will be a tension there. There will definitely be a tension somewhere if you try to do that. 
but to appeal to a principle such as antinomy, that is, that two things which appear to be completely inconsistent are both held at the same time, to appeal to antinomy is to appeal to a principle that in itself needs to be verified. The principle of antinomy in itself needs to be scripturally verified before it can be accepted as a principle of interpretation. Okay? But what the, the, and we'll discuss this more in the next lecture, which is going to be a wrap-up lecture. The idea of antinomy in itself has to be founded upon the scripture with good hermeneutical principles. You cannot start out with antinomy as a hermeneutical principle and think that you're going to come out with good hermeneutics or good exegesis. Hermeneutics is um, principles of interpretation. So the, the rules that you apply in interpreting are commonly called hermeneutics, coming from the Greek word for interpret. Okay? Now, I'll give you the common way in which most people synthesize these two in common, the common language that they use. Well, God knows what I'm going to do, but I'm still free to choose to do that. And he simply knows what I'm going to do, but I'm the one who fixes it by my choice. Now the question is, before you choose to do what you're going to do tomorrow, God knows what you are going to do today. Therefore, it is a fixed event, because otherwise he could not know it if it were only a possibility. Therefore, since it is a fixed event now, it is something that will take place, not something that might take place. And any kind of, of um, mangling your words around to say that future certainties are also future contingencies is only messing around with words. And it denies the first principle of hermeneutics, which is, what do the words mean? Okay? And to say that something is a certainty and a contingency at the same time is always to make a meaningless word series. To say that something is certain and yet not at the same time. Because the contingency means it might not happen. It may or may not. Certainty means it absolutely will happen. And to say that future contingencies are also certainties is only to make a synthesis that's, that's meaningless. And so to, to appeal to a synthesis at that point, or to an antinomy, is only to appeal to a principle that in itself needs to be verified. Okay. And we'll talk in the next lecture about that, whether or not antinomy can be used, or whether it's even there in the scripture. Okay, um, I'd like to say a few things about what effect this doctrine has on the nature of law, sin, and sanction. When you're thinking about the law of God, the moral law of God, sin, which is a violation of the moral law of God, and sanctions, which are the consequences of the moral law of God, both, both positive and negative, but in this case, especially the negative. What is the effect that it has? Well, the problem is this. The law, as we have seen, becomes a statement and not a propositional statement. It becomes a strict statement, this is what you are to do, but it does not, it is not propositional. It does not imply that man can or may or may not keep the law because man is responsible to keep it even though he is completely unable to do so. So therefore, when God makes a statement, you shall not steal, even though when a man steals, he was completely unable to keep from doing so, which we've already covered that in one lecture, even though he's unable to keep from sinning and God commands you not to sin, the statement is still there, therefore the man is still responsible. He's responsible without ability. So the law then becomes statements and not propositions. You shall not steal. You know what a proposition is? It's something that you can accept, not accept, believe, not believe, live according to or not according to. And so the, the Bible is not then presenting propositional statements anymore. 
The Bible is only presenting statements. You shall not steal. You shall not sin. And you're responsible simply because God has said it, not because you're able not to do so. We've already talked about that once. So then it changes the idea of law away from proposition and to only a statement. It changes the idea of sin and makes it a metaphysical necessity. It's the result of your nature and not a choice, even though they will frequently affirm that it is such. The Calvinists will say, you, um, you are completely free to choose according to your nature. You see? And since your nature is sinful, the only thing that you will choose is that which is sinful. Okay? But you are free to choose. And so they use a, the words freedom of choice and free will, but they use it with the idea that you, that you are only free to do, quote, free, only free to do that which your nature determines that you will do. And any concept of freedom that is like that, uh, I ask the question, how, do you, how are you defining the word freedom when you say that uh, something is determined, but it is also free? That, to me, is also a meaningless word series. Okay? But they will say that you are completely free to choose to do what you do, and therefore you are completely responsible, and yet God has foreordained every choice that you are going to make. It's a part of his will. Evil is a part of his will in the universe, too. His secret will, which I've always had questions as to how did they find out God's secret will if they didn't find it out from the Bible. Okay? Now, um, the sanctions of the law, when we consider the perseverance of the saints, if we say that sin was what condemned us in the past, and because of sin, we were justly separated from God, then after you become a Christian, if you can never fall away again, then the connection between sin and sanctions, or its consequences, must be broken. And you must say either that there are no consequences, or that the character of those consequences is dramatically changed for the Christian. You must say that. I'd like to read you a quote concerning that. Again, from the Reformed Doctrine of Predestination by Bettner. Yeah. Did I say why he must say that? Oh, if you... Uh, well, no, I didn't make it very clear, I guess. Uh, the connection between sin and sanctions has to be broken because if sin justly condemned us in the past and the sanctions remain the same after you become a Christian, sin will again justly condemn us if we are involved in it. So that if you say that once you become a Christian, you can never be lost again, even if you sin, then the consequences of sin must be either dropped or changed dramatically. And, um, of course, the Calvinists will never, and we'll talk about this in a moment in another point, the Calvinists will never... Uh, Say, because it's of course unscriptural, will never say that you can be a Christian and it's consistent to sin with that. That's always inconsistent. They'll, they'll assert that constantly because God is holy, he's commanded us to be holy, and so forth. But they make other statements that are completely inconsistent with that, and I'd like to read one. Um, oh, okay, here we go. My thumb on the number. Uh, page 140, 184 in the Reformed Doctrine of Predestination. It's under the section entitled, Our Perseverance Does Not Depend on Our Own Good Works, But on God's Grace. Paul teaches, now you must listen very carefully to, these, to the words that he uses. Paul teaches that believers are not under law, but under grace, 
and that since they are not under the law, they cannot be condemned for having violated the law. Ye are not, now he could be referring to strictly the past in that sense, okay? But he goes on later to talk about future sin or further sin. Ye are not under, under law, but under grace, Romans 6.14. Further sin cannot possibly cause their downfall, for they are under a system of grace and are not treated according to their deserts. In other words, the sanctions of the law no longer apply to a Christian. If it is by grace, it is no more of works. Otherwise, grace is no more grace, Romans 11.6. The law worketh wrath, but where there is no law, neither is there transgression, Romans 4.15. Apart from the law, sin is dead. That is, where the law is abolished, sin can no longer subject the person to punishment, Romans 7.8. So what he's saying is, very clearly what he's saying, is that sin no longer has any consequences for the Christian. Now he speaks in another place, um, to be fair to what he's saying, he speaks in another place and says, it has consequences in the sense that you may for a while suffer um, a problem with your fellowship with God, but it will never separate you from God eternally. Sin will never do that again once you become a Christian because the only thing, in the quote we looked at before, the only thing that can stop you from being a Christian once you become one under the Calvinistic system is that God must completely, metaphysically, change your heart back to the way it was before. It must be another supernatural, sovereign act of God to have you be lost. Because since it didn't depend on your will whether or not you were saved, it doesn't depend on your will whether or not you're kept. Okay? I didn't have this um, written down, but I think I'd like to read it. I can find it here. Uh, yes, this is by Robert L. Dabney. And it's quoted in the book, The Reformed Doctrine of Predestination, um, on page 186. It says, um, talking about God's, God's grace, it's an amazing quote. <laughs> I hardly know where to start. God was not induced to bestow his renewing grace in the first instance by anything which he saw meritorious or attractive in the repenting sinner, and therefore the subsequent absence of everything good in him would be no new motive for God for withdrawing his grace. Do you understand what he's saying? He's not talking about, he's not talking about at the point of conversion. He's talking about before eternity. I'll read it again. God was not induced to bestow his renewing grace in the first instance, that's his before eternity, by anything which he saw meritorious or attractive in the repenting sinner, and therefore the subsequent absence of everything good, that means once you become a Christian, even if you're completely rotten after that, in him would be no new motive for God, to, for God withdrawing his grace. In other words, sin is not a motive for God to withdraw his grace. It doesn't depend upon what you do because it didn't depend upon what you did for him to give you his grace. And therefore, yeah, right. When he first bestowed that, that grace, he knew that the sinner on whom he bestowed it was totally depraved and holy and only hateful in himself to the divine holiness. And therefore, no new instance of ingratitude or unfaithfulness 
of which the sinner may become guilty after his conversion can be any provocation to God to change his mind and wholly withdraw his sustaining grace. God knew all this ingratitude before. He will chastise it by temporarily withdrawing his Holy Spirit or his providential mercy. But if he had not intended from the first to bear with it and to forgive it in Christ, he would not have called the sinner by his grace at first. Which is quite an amazing thing, considering some of the other things that they state concerning uh, God's foreknowledge. In a word, the causes for which God determined to bestow his electing love on the sinner are wholly in God. That's W-H-O-L-L-Y, in God, and not at all in the believer. And hence, nothing in the believer's heart or conduct can finally change that purpose of love. So that basically nothing that we do after we become a Christian can change the fact that we are a Christian. Can't change that in any way. Now, the Calvinists will still say that there is no excuse for sin because it's inconsistent for the Christian. It's inconsistent to belong to a holy God and then and live in a way that's not holy. He will say that that is inconsistent, and yet, if he says that the connection between sin and its sanctions is broken, then no matter how you look at it, either subconsciously or consciously, you're going to be affected to have a low view of sin. Okay? Because the sanctions are broken. The consequences are not, are not there anymore. Now, we'd like to take a look at scriptures. Scriptures that are used to prove the perseverance of the saints. And I'm going to ask some questions. I'm not going to try to completely refute all of these, but I'm going to just ask some questions. And by, this is by no means complete. They use many, many, many verses of Scripture to, um, to substantiate this. But we'll start in the book of John, chapter 5. And we'll look at the verses, and I'm going to ask some questions, and I'll inform you of a few things as we go along, some from the Greek, some from just reasoning, and some from other Scriptures that bear on the subject. Okay? In John, chapter 5, and verse 24, Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and does not come into judgment, but has passed out of death into life. And they use this verse to say that once you have believed, that you have passed out of death into life. And so that since that is a completed past action, that you have passed out of death and into life, that therefore you are now in life and you can't pass back into that again. And, of course, the appeal is to another part of their doctrine, which is irresistible grace. Since it happened apart from your will, then it cannot be reversed by your will. But it, it's interesting, in these verses, and you will note as we go through, if you listen carefully, it is very interesting that they very frequently ignore conditions that are actually in the verse itself. They ignore the conditions that are actually in the verse itself. It says, truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes him who sent me. That's in the present tense. You see? It doesn't say believes. It says believes him who sent me. Now, we have another verse to contend with later in um, John chapter 6, which does have it in the past tense, and we'll see what that says. So then, actual conditions that are in the verse can be completely overlooked. Um, John chapter 6, this is one that's used very frequently. Lots of verses that they use from this. As a matter of fact, we'll have to go through about half of the chapter. Starting with verse 37, which is used. 
all that all that the father gives me and they say that that is an irresistible irrevocable choice of election that the father has made whereas in verse 45 if you compare that it says everyone who has heard and learned from the father comes to me so it's conditional but um in, they say in verse 37, all that the Father gives me shall come to me is something that the Father has chosen to do and gives to the Son, and it's not conditional. All that the Father gives me shall come to me, and the one who comes to me I will certainly not cast out. Now, they do not take this in the sense of, when they're trying to prove perseverance, do not take this in the sense of refuse, which is the way that most people take this verse. The one who comes to me, I will not refuse. In other words, I will accept the one who comes. Whereas they take it to mean, the one who comes to me, I will not cast out, meaning that once he comes to me, he will always be secure. He will never be refused after that. Okay? So that's the way it's taken. And I'd like to point out that the words, the one who comes, is a present participle in the Greek, which means the one coming to me, I will certainly not cast out. And it is present tense, and it's a modifier. And it means that the one who is coming right now, as opposed to the one who is not coming, is the one who he will not, whom he will not cast out. So it's a, it's a present modifier, present participle, if you know something about participles. Okay. Um, verse 38, For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Verse 39, And this is the will of him who sent me that of all that he has given me, I lose nothing, but raise it up on the last day. Verse 40. For this is the will of my Father. I'm emphasizing those specifically. The will of my Father, that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in him may have eternal life, and I myself will raise him up on the last day. Now, one question, one thing we must remember, and one question that we must ask, is what does it mean, the will of him who sent me, the will of my Father. Now the Calvinist asserts that the will of God is irrevocably done. It is never contradicted. We've already seen in another lecture scriptures on the fact that God's will is resisted. Why would Jesus have us pray, your will be done in earth as it is in heaven if, if his will is always being done? This is the will of God, your sanctification, that you should abstain from fornication. And yet God, Paul had to write to the, to the Thessalonians, stop fornicating. You see, so obviously in the, in the Thessalonians, the will of God was not being done. You see, he said, this is the will of God. So the will of God might not be done, and it says, this is the will of him who sent me, that of all that he has given me, I lose nothing, but raise it up on the last day. Now they would say, since his will is always done, they will be raised up on the last day. It's irrevocable. Once a person's a Christian, they're going to be raised up to the resurrection of the righteous on the last day. And we would have to say, but if the will of God can be resisted, then that may be the will of the Father, and it yet may not be accomplished if there are other conditions that are involved. Then in the next verse it says, For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who beholds, or the one beholding, it's also a present participle, the one beholding the Son, and the one believing in Him, that's also a present participle, may have eternal life, and I myself will raise Him up on the last day. So then there are conditions that are involved to the will of the Father being done in our being raised up on the last day. And that is, if we're beholding the Son, and if we are believing in Him, then we will be raised up on the last day. Okay? Now, um, let's go down to verse... Uh, 
Let's go down to verse 47. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes has eternal life. Now, why they would choose that for a verse to prove perseverance, I don't know. Because it involves a condition right in it. And just from a simple reading of it, he who believes, and this is also a present participle, the one believing has eternal life. And it's a modifier. Participle is a verb, a verbal form that's being used as an adjective. So it's the one who is believing that has eternal life. And of course, since it's an adjective, it's to distinguish the, the noun, which means what? That the one who is believing is the one who has eternal life, and the one who is not believing has what? Does not have eternal life. Look at another verse like that in a minute. Now, two verses that are used very frequently because they contain an, aor, uh, an aorist tense, tense, which is a completed action, are like this. Verse 50 and 51. This is the bread which comes down out of heaven, so that one may eat of it and not die. And the words, may eat of it, are the aorist, which means a completed action. Not a continual action, but a completed one. Okay? So they use this and say, if you've eaten at all, you will never die. Okay? And it seems to make sense from the, from the verb tense. I am the living bread, this is verse 51, I am the living bread that came down out of heaven. If anyone eats, and this is also the aorist, of this bread, he shall live forever. And the bread also which I give, I shall give, for the life of the world is my flesh. Now it's interesting that Jesus has related both of those to his coming down out of heaven. And he relates it as a purpose. He relates it as a purpose. And so his coming down out of heaven is looking forward to the fact of a person's eating. And when you look forward to the fact of a person's eating, you can consider it a complete action in itself, rather than, than, looking, uh, rather than talking present tense about a continual action. Now, it's interesting that there are two aorist tenses there, and that there are one, two, four, five in verses 54 through 58 that say that eating and drinking must be continually done if you are to have eternal life. And so in the context with the verbs that are used, I would have to say, according to the usage of the aorist tense there, I must find out what does that mean, because he also says that it's con it must be a constant eating to be able to be saved. Verse 54, the one eating my flesh and the one drinking my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true, true food and my blood is true drink. The one eating my flesh and the one drinking my blood abides in me and I in him. Verse 58. This is the bread which came, which came down out of heaven, not as the fathers ate and died. He who is eating this bread, or the one eating this bread, shall live forever. And those, so he, he who is eating, he who is drinking, or the one eating and the one drinking, are all present participles in the Greek. It's the one who is, who is eating that has eternal life. Okay? So I'll leave the rest of the study of that chapter up to you. Chapter 10. Verses 28 through 30. Can we keep the questions to last? Please? Chapter 10, verses 28 through 30. If you have questions, please write them down so you don't forget them. Okay? And I give them, I give to them, excuse me, and I give eternal life to them. It's the other way around in the Greek. And I give to them eternal life. And they shall never perish, and no one shall snatch them out of my hands. 
My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. And they use this to say that once you become a Christian, you are in the Father's hand, and you can never go, be out of his hand again, because Jesus said no one can snatch them out of the Father's hand. So it's also interesting to note that he's talking about no one can snatch them. That's one point. No one can snatch them. It doesn't talk about they themselves. It's talking about someone outside of the hand cannot take them out of the hand. But that's a weak argument. Uh, my question about this verse is, verse 27, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. And as we've seen in another lecture, the question is whether or not it's conditional as you're becoming a sheep. And the Calvinists, with their interpretation of the word sheep, meaning the elect, those that God has already chosen, say that you do not become a sheep, you simply are a sheep. You're born one way or the other, a sheep or a goat, you see? And you are one or the other all the way through your life because you either are elect or you are not. The question is, what is a sheep? What is a shepherd? See? What does it mean to follow? And Jesus said, of course, you can look at the conditions all the way through the 10th the, um, chapter. The person who follows me, I would say, from that chapter is a, a sheep. Okay, we have to hurry on. Romans chapter 8, verses 35 through 39. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or peril, or sword? Just as it is written, For thy sake we are being put to death all day long. We, are, we were considered as sheep to be slaughtered. But in all these things we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And under the phrase, nor any other created thing, the Calvinist also inserts the believer himself and says that the believer himself also cannot separate himself from the love of God. Okay? Now, a question that we have to ask about this verse is, can we place conditions upon God's love? No. That may sound strange. But we cannot, con we, whether or not we love God, or whether or not we believe, does not condition whether or not he loves us. He loves us regardless of whether or not we, we are believing in him. While we were yet sinners, it says in Romans 5, in verse 6, Christ died for us. Verse 8. Yeah. In due time, Christ died for the ungodly. It didn't depend upon what we had done as to whether or not God loved us. Okay? Well, that's one question I have to ask about the verse. Another one is, verse 35, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Then it goes on to list these things. Tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, peril, or sword. It does not list sin. Because we read in other places in the gospel that sin will separate us from God. The wages of sin is death. Very simple statement. Okay? It does not list sin in that list. But in all these things, we are overwhelmingly, we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. It does not promise conquering in our own strength, our own power. It promises conquering through him. So there's a condition that's involved. Okay? And then when it says, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord, you can also take the phrase, in Christ Jesus our Lord, that if we are not in him, 
Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. But if a person is not in Christ, he's not. That's conditional, you see. And so as long as we are, are in Christ Jesus our Lord, we cannot be separated from the love of God. But that's conditional upon our will. Uh, Romans chapter 6 and verse 14 is used sometimes. For sin shall not be master over you, for you are not under law, but under grace. And of course the idea here is, as we've looked at before, that the law has been changed for the Christian. It is no longer propositional. The consequences of the sanctions no longer apply to the Christian. And so therefore, um, sin cannot separate the person from God any, any longer. I was going to give an example, but I don't think I will. It's a bit extreme. Um, Romans chapter 11, verse 29, says, For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. The gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. And I would have to say with the Calvinists at that point, yes, I believe that verse completely. The fact that God calls a person, they interpret to mean once you are called, you are. they use the word for elect, which is also translated the same way, that when you are elected, that's something that cannot be resisted by you. Whereas we saw in the idea of unconditional election when we discussed that, that election means to be chosen to an office, but it's something that you can opt out of. Um, 1 John chapter 5, verses 11 and 13. 1 John chapter 5, verses 11 and 13. This is the witness that God has given us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. God has given us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. And they say, God, past tense, has given us eternal life. And once you gain eternal life, you cannot lose that. Okay? Because it's eternal. Right? Now, of course, in, we have to take what the Bible means by eternal life, and in John 17, 3, it gives us a definition. This is eternal life, that they might know thee, the only true God, and the one that you have sent, the Lord Jesus Christ. So eternal life, life is not necessarily uh, a duration. It has that aspect. But it's not necessarily a duration. It actually is talking about knowing God. The witness is this, that God has given to us eternal life. Verse 13, These things I have written to you, who believe in the name of the Son of God, in order that you may know, present tense, that you have, present tense, eternal life. Okay? Number one, there's a condition in here. You who believe, that's in the present, in the name of the Son of God, in order that you may know that you have eternal life. Yes, if you are believing, you can say, I know, I have eternal life. The question is whether or not, if you're not believing, you can say, I know, I have eternal life. And then, consequently... Verse 12 was skipped when the references were given. I took these from a Calvinist author, his proofs. Um, verse 12, he who is having, present tense, the Son, is having the life. He who does not have or is not having the Son is not having the life. Present tense. They're all present tense verbs. The one who is not having the Son is not having the life. The one who is not having, or, yeah, right. The one who is having the Son is having the life. So there are conditions, even involved in the verse itself. The one who believes the name of the Son of God has eternal life. 1 Peter 1.5 is used. 1 The reason I'm giving a lot of scriptures and showing how they're used is because 
many times the Calvinist will not appeal to his whole backlog of doctrine, but will simply say, oh, but it's just scriptural. Wham, 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 wham. And they throw out a whole bunch of verses. <laughs> you see? And they point out a whole bunch of proof texts, and then you have to ask the question, are those proof texts valid that they are using? Are they in their proper context? Are there conditions involved with those verses and so forth? You have to ask those questions. 1 Peter 1.5 says, Who are protected by the power of God through faith, for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Interesting, isn't it, that they would almost ignore the words through faith. They ignore the words, for by grace are you saved through faith, in Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. Actually, they give them a different meaning. Okay? They say that faith is the gift of God. It is not something that you choose to do. Because you cannot choose to do that. You're unable. Now, um, 1 Corinthians 10.13 is used, which is about temptation, very familiar verse. 1 Corinthians 10.13 says, No temptation has overtaken you, but such as is common to man. And God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able. Now, many people stop with the verse, but he goes on to say something else. But with the temptation will provide the way of escape also that you may be able to endure it. It does not say that the temptation will not come to you. It says that the way God helps it not to be too great is by providing a way of escape. Because it doesn't say God will not give you the temptation, period. It doesn't stop there. It says he will not allow you to be tempted above that you are able, but will with the temptation also make a way of escape that you may be able to bear it. So that the idea is not that God sorts out every temptation that comes along and then only allows you to obtain or have a temptation that's easy enough for you to handle, but that some temptations God cannot justly stop, but he can justly provide a way of escape and say, there's the door. And it's up to us whether or not we take the door, and he can justly balance out on every side any temptation that would come to us so that nothing that comes would ever be too strong if we take the door of escape along with the temptation. Because it does say, with the temptation. And they say, of course, in this, that God, since God is the complete sovereign ruler over all, he will never allow you to have anything that you cannot bear, so therefore you will never be lost because you will never come in contact with a sin as a Christian that will um, overcome you. That's the way they take it to be. I think that's a problem because they don't take the last half of the verse uh, as a continuation of the verse. One more, Philippians chapter 1 and verse 6. Philippians chapter 1 and verse 6, For I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. Sounds like a very strong statement that what God has started, he will absolutely confirm right until the very end. But the question that we have to ask is, the beginning and the perfecting, are those conditional? It's only talking about the aspect of God's involvement in our salvation. God began a good work in us at one time in our lives as Christians. Our question is, was that conditional? Was his beginning a good work in us conditional upon our accepting that good work being started in us? You see? Whereas the Calvinist takes this to say, he started a good work in you, and he did it, of course, irresistibly, irrevocably, and he will continue in the same fashion. And we would ask, are both of those things 
unconditional or conditional. We can depend upon the fact that if we have, if we're trusting in the Lord, if we're eating and drinking, if we're believing, as the other conditions were, that God will continue the work in us. We can depend upon that. But I do not believe that we can depend upon any idea that if we stop believing, and if we fail to, um, to keep his commandment, and so forth, of course his commandments are not grievous, but if we fail to serve, to love him, to drink, and to eat of him, I don't believe we have any conditional or any um, scriptural basis for saying that God will continue his work in us. Okay. So the question anyway about that verse is, is it conditional or unconditional? Now, a few closing comments before we have discussion. Some problems with perseverance. Okay? It stands or falls with the whole system. You can't take it by itself. It stands or falls with the whole system. You notice as I went through the scriptures that many times an appeal had to be made to another part of the system in order to be able to get the verse to interpret to support perseverance. They'd have to make an appeal to inability or an appeal to election or an appeal to irresistible grace, appeal to the complete sovereignty of God, an appeal to, to complete predestination, something like that, to be able to get the verse to interpret the way they wanted it. Okay? Another thing is it's a result of a confusion of metaphysics and morals. Metaphysics being your being, having to do with being, and morals having to do with choice. It's a confusion of these two. And they are saying that the same rules apply to all spheres of creation. They say that laws of cause and effect apply to the physical realm, and laws of cause and effect also apply in the moral realm. So that, therefore, God changes your heart, and as a law of necessity, you start choosing to do the right things. Now, they use metaphysical metaphors as more than just metaphors. Now, I'll give you an example. We read a quote that said, It is just as impossible for you as a spiritual son of the spiritual father to become not a son as it is for you as an earthly son of an earthly father to not be a son. And they are taking the, um, the metaphorical example of father-son relationship, which in the physical realm is a matter of cause and effect over which you have no choice. And they take that and use it as a direct example of, an illustration of, rather than a metaphor, the spiritual relationship. And they exclude the idea of the morality of man in the fact that when you, when you become a son of the Father, is it on the basis of your choice to become a son? Okay. And so they take that and they say that, it's, that the two are exactly the same. You don't choose to become a son of your earthly father, so you cannot choose to undo it. You don't choose to become a son of the heavenly father, so therefore you cannot choose to undo it. You see? And that is taking salvation and putting it on a metaphysical plane, just like the birth of human beings, the physical birth of human beings, and saying that the two are exactly the same and that they follow the same principles. Well, we'd have to ask a lot of questions about that as to whether our morals follow the, exactly the same principles as uh, physical creation. Okay, um, another point. There is a complete body of scripture stating conditions to salvation. Of course, the reply of the Calvinist to this would be, yes, God states them as conditions, even if man is unable to meet them, and man is still responsible to repent, and he is guilty if he does not, even though he cannot. So it is just for God to make the statement, even though man cannot keep it. Okay, that would be the reply. 
the common reply. But the body, there are a body of scriptures that if you do not read into them a presupposed idea, which is called Jesus. if you do not read into them a presupposition, they seem to state very clearly that there are conditions. If you believe, if you confess with your mouth, if you confess, if you repent, if you believe and are baptized, see, that always seem to state it as a condition, and in simple understanding of those words, we would say salvation is conditional. And the only way that you can say that those verses mean something else is to read a presupposition into it. Because on a simp the simplest reading, looking at it for what it says, it says, if, then. And the only way we can take that in a simple reading is, if you do this, then this will happen. Okay? And what they have to do is say, even though it says, if, then, they have to read in um, their, their whole system of doctrine in order to be able to get it to say that salvation is not conditional. Okay, I'd like to point you to a couple of books. Um, Guy Duty's book, If Ye Continue, The Study of the Conditional Aspects of Salvation by Guy Duty, okay, uh, published by Bethany Fellowship. <clears throat> it lists 104 places from Genesis to Revelation where it talks about salvation is conditional. Okay, and for the few references, for the few references that are plucked out by the Calvinists to say that salvation is unconditional, it doesn't stand very good ground against 104 places that are very clear statements that salvation is conditional. He takes covenant in the Old Testament, goes through the covenant with Abraham, with David, with Solomon, with uh, the people at Sinai, and goes through the new covenant, the words of Jesus, the, goes through the epistles, all the way through to the book of Revelation, and shows that all the way through, covenants were conditional. And so when God makes the new covenant, which is based upon the old, that that is also conditional. And so, therefore, salvation is conditional. It's a good book. It's um, uh, if you're looking for a really heavy exegetical study, it's not real. It's not real deep, but it's good in the things that it does bring out. It's a good, uh, also a good uh, study of Romans chapter nine. There's another book called Life in the Sun by Shank Robert Shank, who is a Southern Baptist, wasn't he? He's a Southern Baptist, and uh, it's a refutation again of um, the doctrine of perseverance, also including a lot of his personal testimony as to his uh, coming to understand that. Yeah. Okay. Floyd says the exegesis is very good in that. Um, a couple more things, two more points. The doctrine of perseverance would appear to give us real assurance. It would appear to give us real assurance, but it does these things. It causes question about the character of God and his justice. And anything that causes question about the character of God and his justice immediately begins to shake our assurance. Because in what is our assurance based? The character of God and his action towards us. Okay? And then it encourages, either consciously or subconsciously, a light attitude towards sin. It encourages, either consciously or subconsciously, a light attitude towards sin. And as a final quote, I'd like to read to you from uh, Redemption Accomplished and Applied by John Murray, who's a Calvinist. Um, <clears throat> he says this, and I'd have to agree with him. Experience, observation, excuse me, this is from page 151 in his book, Redemption Accomplished and Applied. Chapter 8, Perseverance. Experience, 
observation, biblical history, and certain scripture passages would appear to provide very strong arguments against the doctrine which has been called the perseverance of the saints. And I'd like to know that if experience, observation, biblical history, and certain scripture passages seem to provide uh, very strong arguments against the doctrine of predestination, shouldn't we give a little more credence to experience, observation, biblical history, and certain scripture passages? And pay a little more attention, rather than saying, even though they appear to do that, of course, they're wrong. Okay. I have some real questions about that. Okay, we'll have a time of discussion now. You want to come? We'll just pick you up. I'll hand it. So, questions, comments? John, you had a question. I was just getting around to unconditional and conditional uh, things within the will of God. Things just don't happen. They're normally conditions for people who all that comes out clearly in those references. Okay, question is answered. Carol. This is an interesting verse that, that I came across one day in John 18, 8 and 9. Um, that Jesus answered, when Jesus was being accosted by the Lord, he said, Jesus answered, I have told you that I am he. If therefore you seek me, let these go their way, that the saying might be fulfilled, which you spake, of them which thou gavest me, have I lost none. So John came to think that, that that other verse refers to. Right. In John, Carol's just pointing out, in John chapter 17, Jesus said, Of those which you gave me, I have lost none, which is also used as a verse by Calvinists to say that, to prove the perseverance of the saints. Those which you gave me, I lost none. But in John chapter 18, uh, John seemed to think that that was fulfilled in the garden when Jesus said, Let these go their way and take me. But that saying might be fulfilled. So it's not talking about the salvation of the believer, but it was talking about he thought it was fulfilled in what Jesus, what happened in the garden with the disciples being let go as Jesus was arrested. It's a rather interesting thing to see the correlation. In my uh, time on the first John, I ran across the uh, verse that kind of uh, raised some questions, not, not serious questions, but I, don't, I, I believe in unconditional security. But... Uh, it has some interesting ideas in First John chapter two verse nineteen. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they could, they would, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might be plain that they were not of us. Um, seems to be a, seems to be a strong verse on perseverance. But if, if they have, if they are of us, if they were of us, they would have continued. Um, I'm wondering if you would have studied that verse or run across it anyway. Um, the question is about First uh, John in the statement that if they were of us, they would have continued with us, but be- they were not of us so that they didn't continue. Um, I would ask the same question about that verse that I've asked about the other verses. Is what constitutes being of us? Is being of us conditional or unconditional? Because it gives, us, it gives the statement, if they were of us, they would have continued, whereas it could be used as a strong verse with a presupposition it could be used as a strong verse to say that they were not elect. It also could be a description, a true description of people who were not of us. Never truly saved. Who were never truly saved. I believe that's a a possible um, principle to apply to our situation at times, even today. 
I'd hate to say a blanket, you know, take that as a blanket kind of thing, that everybody who goes out and from the true faith and stays out, therefore never was of the faith. Um, but it could be a true description of people there. Not necessarily a universal principle. That's what some people believe, who believe the first appearance of saints. When I was in Nottingham, I was talking to one guy, and he said, well, anybody who falls away, and it's evident that he falls away, uh, was probably never truly converted in the first place. Mm-hmm. That, that statement, though, that um, a person who falls away was never truly converted in the first place can only be substantiated upon the presupposition of election. It can't be substantiated upon scriptural evidence. Because there are many places that talks about some shall depart from the faith, giving heed to seducing spirits. And if you depart from the faith, the logical inference is that you had the faith at one time. And the word apostatize means to, uh, to fall away from the faith. I have some interesting scriptures. In fact, well, I won't need to give them, but if you want to see a very interesting list of scriptures that share, number one, the conditions of salvation, uh, in an appendix, in fact, Appendix A in Life and Shank's book, you can find that list. It's quite an exhaustive list. It has um, 70, 80, about 85 passages that he suggests show conditions. He also then lists from a book by uh, Perry Schaefer, who's a noted Calvinist, um, scriptures that are considered to be misunderstood by Armenians and how Schaefer views them to be misunderstood. So that would give you a good uh, view of the other side. And then he, he takes an, uh, he exhaustively goes through all the scriptures that show that man is eternally secure and gives his understanding of them. So it, there is some very excellent exegesis from this passage. Historical and the Biblical Exegesis. A very, very excellent book. One of the best I've ever read as far as being uh, biblically sound. Okay, Harry? I have a question, just a comment about Shank's book. Uh, he, he set out to write a book to prove eternal security. Really? Mm-hmm. He did the research at the school I attended, and so it was, it was, a, it was a textbook, and, uh, and uh, he was quite a bit about it on the faculty. And, uh, he actually set out to, to do it that way, and as a to research Chase's position. Um, question um, that I had um, question that I had is um, what is your position on when is salvation lost? How is salvation lost? When do you lose salvation? Um, repeat the question. I'll, re- I'll repeat the question. <laughs> The question is, um, what is my, my position? Fortunately, you're asking for an opinion. Um, what, is, what is my position on when salvation is actually lost? And I think most of you have heard before the understanding of the, the idea of an ultimate intention in life as opposed to subordinate or routine choices that help carry out that, that end. I believe it's when you've changed your ultimate intention in life from um, the love and the service of God back to selfishness, um, and that it's not just a series of subordinate uh, choices that have taken place, but that you actually have changed the entire motive of your life again, back to self-gratification, and whereas conversion is, re- is repentance from self-gratification to doing what you know is right in the service of God and living in accordance with the truth, honestly, up as much as you know, 
then when you've turned back to self-gratification as an ultimate uh, direction of your life, then you have lost salvation because you are no longer in fellowship with God. You wouldn't be because that's the states described as sin, I believe. Jesus spoke of people having evil hearts or good hearts in Luke chapter 6 and uh, said that out of the evil heart, the evil man brings forth his treasure and out of the good heart, the good man brings forth uh, a good treasure. And uh, I don't believe that a subordinate or a routine choice, that is, the means to the end of, uh, of our ultimate intention in life, that any of those change our ultimate intention, but that we have to be careful against being hardened with those, as it points out in Hebrews 3, that we should exhort one another daily, lest we be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin, and then eventually it could happen, that this, um, as it's pointed out there in Hebrews 3 and 4, that we could fail because of unbelief. You may have um, answered this in some of your earlier lectures, but in what sense then uh, is a Christian separated from God when he sins? The question is, uh, in what sense is a Christian separated from God when he sins? Um, I believe as long as it's on a subordinate or a routine level, and it doesn't have to do with our ultimate intention in life, in other words, the main direction of, of our life, of which Jesus said there were two, good heart, evil heart, good tree, bad tree, with me, against me, gathering, scattering, that kind of thing. Um, that as long as the main intention is, is to love and to serve God, that sin will strain our relationship with God. And I'm not really sure what kind of... That, that may be the total consequence but there may be other consequences which are not, uh, are not explicitly spelled out that may have to be taken care of later. Um, my view of hell sort of um, colors that a lot because I don't, I don't view hell... Number one, the Bible says man is tormented, not tortured. And so I don't see it as coming from the outside but from the inside when a man is in hell, that something's coming from inside of himself, from the light that he's rejected. And uh, he's bothered by himself, by what he's done in his past not by the outward, outside external circumstances. In other words, I don't believe in literal flames, because if it's literal flames, it's literal trees that are in hell, and not people. Uh, I don't think you can take part of a symbol and take the other one, but literally. And so, in hell, the person's condemnation is greater because of their rejection of light, and so they torment themselves more in that fashion. And so, the effect of sin may be completely uh, that it's torment in ourselves, and that, um, of course, there are some there are um, external ramifications of that. If you murder somebody, it's not just internal. Uh, there's an external uh, effect of that. But then, that you can see that my view of hell in that aspect would, uh, would color that, that it may be that those, that will be all that will happen to the Christian, and yet there may be some that will happen later, some ramifications that might happen. The reason why I ask is that when you... Um, Say, you know, the Bible says that man is separated from God by sin. Mm -hmm. And you are using that in a very absolute, definite way. Um, I, there, there is still a very heavy question. Is, am I separated from God when I know I have sinned and I have yet to repent of that? Um, to the point, well, to what point am I separated? And, and I, you said you're expressing an opinion. Um, but there must be some more satisfactory biblical answer to what sense that, that separation is. Um, I can give you an illustration from everyday life in relationships with other moral beings that may illustrate what's happening with God, and that is the idea that um, when I sin against Carol, 
uh, am I immediately not married anymore if I get angry at her once? Um, the idea of relationship has to be considered as to what is a relationship. And when two people commit themselves together in a relationship, does that mean that as soon as, as anything in that relationship is broken, that there is absolutely no longer any relationship? Well, we don't usually consider relationships in that light uh, with other moral beings besides God. And so um, that would your view on relationship would color that. Now, there are both sides of the camp. Charles Finney, Harry Kahn, both um, accept the idea that when a person sins once, Winky Prattney does too, that when a person sins once, that they are separated from God, that they are lost. Now, I can't sustain that, that, uh, that view. Gordon Olson says the relationship is strained, but not, um, but not lost. And I'm not, right now, I'm not saying either way which one's right, wrong, indifferent. I just have my own opinion. Separation without divorce, yeah, the, the whole relationship hasn't been completely annihilated, but uh, there is a problem in the relationship. But there's another thing, too, that remember I talked about, it's, there's security as well, in that when two people commit themselves to each other, the commitment becomes a security to the relationship. That when you've committed yourself to someone else, if things begin to go wrong, the commitment begins to influence you towards getting that straightened out, rather than away from which happens in relationships where there is no commitment in the world, such as a guy that goes from girl to girl to girl, um, uh, has no commitment. And so therefore, any little thing that comes up breaks the relationship completely. You see? Whereas when people are committed to each other, it's an influence towards working out the problem rather than um, the breaking completely of the relationship. So there are differing opinions, and I'm still thinking about it myself. I have a thought, though, about the verses that are used by Finney he says that um, uh, a good tree cannot bring forth evil fruit. Therefore, if you have an ultimate intention in life which is uh, righteous, and you bring forth any kind of evil fruit, you have therefore thus changed your ultimate intention in life for that particular time. And until you repent, your ultimate intention is, is changed as well. But I'd have to ask the question, does a tree bring, fruit, bring forth fruit instantaneously? And when Jesus was talking about bringing forth fruit, was he talking about the overall direction of a person's life, or was he talking about an instantaneous act of bringing forth fruit? And along with that, it seems like Finney takes the opposite view on the person who, um, uh, on, the verse, on the verse of Scripture, the person who uh, is a Christian cannot sin. He says you cannot press that to the letter, because obviously a person who is a Christian can sin. So what does it mean? It means that the person who has an ultimate intention for God, is general, the general purpose and direction of his life is going to be not to sin. And the rare exception is going to be a sin. You see? But then I'd have to take that and apply that to the other scripture as well and say, when Jesus was talking about fruit, that he was saying the general direction of a person's life will be righteousness. The rare exception is going to be a bad apple on a tree. Okay, any other questions? Okay, we'll close then. Uh, did you mention the publisher of this book, Life and Sun? No, I didn't. The publisher is Westcott, and it's published in um, Springfield, Missouri. Westcott Publishers, W-E-S-T-C-O-T-T, -T -T, by Robert Shank.